You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Amen. Thank you, Dash and Shay. And I want to also say good morning and welcome. I'm delighted that you're here. It's church. It's church. It's people who have come together to encounter the living God. Whether they know that or not, we believe that God and his sovereignty has divinely directed your steps to be in this place among these people to study his word by his spirit. And so that's what we're here to do. My name is Eric Barton, and I get to pastor down here. And if I haven't met you, I absolutely want the chance to do that. But I'm delighted that you're here. I want to I want to start off this morning as we kick back into our spring semester series in the life of David. We're, we're talking about King David, this warrior, poet, shepherd, and king. I want to get back into that. We took a brief pause through Palm Sunday and then in Easter, all of our Easter weekend activities. And so we're coming back into really sort of spend the rest of the spring talking through the life of David. And this morning, I want to tell you a story that... Um, well, unfortunately, it's about me. The summer before my sophomore year in high school, now, unfortunately, I can tell you that's over three decades ago. That's horrifying. Nonetheless, summer before my sophomore year in high school, I had a job working in a sheet metal facility, R&R sheet metal up in the panhandle of Texas. Now, when I say I had a job that summer, I should be clear, it was for a grand total of 16 hours. Here's the deal. I worked there for two days, and it may have been the most traumatic experience of my life. My job was to go behind and help Cecil. Cecil, this should have been a clue to me. Cecil had three fingers on one hand, and he had two fingers on another hand, and shaking hands with Cecil was always an adventure because you might go right up to the elbow if you didn't know how to stop. Cecil was the man for whom the movie character Ratatouille was based. Cecil was a piece of work. And Cecil would work all of the sheet metal. He would feed it into the shear, and this enormous machine that was comprised of hydraulics and gears would crunch down, and it would shear off massive sheets of metal as if it was a paper cutter. It was unbelievable. And my job was to go behind Cecil, pick up the scrap, and go throw it in the scrap pile and come back and come to get more. Well, it took about a day and a half before Cecil recognized, hey, this kid's got potential. He can probably do this by himself. <laughs> well, day two, I showed up, and mid to late morning, Cecil decided it was time for him to go and get a mid-morning refreshment. And by mid-morning refreshment, I, of course, mean that which was manufactured in Milwaukee. Cecil was gone. And he said, that's the stack of things that need to get sheared. Just put them in, dial up this knob here, put that pressure gauge there, stomp the plunger, and the metal will cut and move it along. It'll be fine. And I said, okay. And suddenly, my whole life was built around trying to impress Cecil. And so I fed in the first few sheets of metal, and sure enough, this massive machine, gears churning, steam spitting out, sparks flying. I hit the pedal, and the metal just cuts like a warm knife through butter. It was glorious. Oh, the power. And then I kept going until I forgot what I was doing. It's kind of a monotonous job, this. 
hence Cecil's missing digits. And I fit a piece of metal into the shear, but I forgot a crucial step. I forgot that you have to always be careful, shut the machine down, tag it out, reach in and clear the debris. But now I'm getting a pace. Now I'm getting a, a rhythm going, and I forgot to clear the debris from the previous cut. And so I fit in this massive piece of carbon steel, about two inches thick, and I shoved it in there, and I just hit the plunger. And the gears came down, and I hear this groaning. So I did what you would do. I dialed up the pressure. And I stomped it. I'm reminded, this is more than 30 years ago, who would hire me? Don't hire me, okay? I dialed up the pressure. I stomped the plunger again. Now it's really, really grinding. And I'm thinking, well, I, I got to cut this metal. I don't want Cecil to get mad at me. He might actually eat me. So I dialed up the pressure one more time, and I stomped the plunger. It was at that point that what happened can only be described sort of like a localized train wreck where things just go really bad, really loud, really nearby. It was also at that moment that I heard the shrieking voice of Cecil come up behind me, followed closely by a cloud of old Milwaukee breath. And he was screaming at me, and this thing just... It imploded. All of the gears, all of the hydraulics, all of the power this machine was designed to do was now turned in on itself, and it destroyed itself. It's my last day in the sheet metal business. <laughs> I left that, but it's always stuck with me. All of that power turned in on itself what damage and destruction it can cause. This is dysfunction. Webster's Dictionary describes dysfunction as impaired or abnormal functioning. Second definition, it says, an abnormal or unhealthy interpersonal behavior or interaction within a group or family. There was a localized train wreck. All of those parts that had been engineered to work together were causing one another damage, do you see? And so I'll define dysfunction thus. Dysfunction is when something functions in a way other than the way it was intended. And so all the parts work against one another, and it brings about destruction. This morning in our Bibles, in our text, we're going to hear the story of a localized train wreck of dysfunction in our Bibles. This morning, hopefully, we're going to see our big idea for the morning, and it goes like this. There is sin, but there is a Savior. Creatively, I ripped it right out of our assurance of the gospel. Because in a, such a story, such a long, sweeping narrative of dysfunction, we have to have hope. There is sin, but there is a Savior. So if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 15. 2 Samuel chapter 15. While you're turning there, I will remind you that we have been this entire spring uh, half of 2018 walking through studying the life of David. And all of these narratives, all of these stories, how they are preparing us for and pointing us to the coming of Christ, the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one of the Old Testament. All of these narratives, all of these stories are not about us and if you read the Bible that way, as if it's just a collection of morals and fables and stories and principles, you'll totally miss the point. These stories of the Old Testament are telling us what, what Messiah will accomplish, and now we know that he has come. In fact, Jesus, after his resurrection, we celebrated Easter last week, after Easter Sunday morning, is walking along a road to Emmaus, and he encounters two distraught, discouraged disciples, and he says, what are y'all talking about? And they say, don't you know? 
he's dead. And Jesus says, oh, you don't understand. You've been reading the Bible incorrectly. Let me help. Luke 24, verse 27 says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus explains, I am the only one for whom it can actually be said, it's all about me. Because he's right. And so that brings us now at long last to 2 Samuel chapter 15. I'll begin reading in verse 1. 2 Samuel 15, verse 1 says, After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Well, that's a mouthful. After this. To understand what's happening with Absalom and who Absalom is, we got to do a little bit of a rewind, a little bit of a backstory, a little bit of some context. So if you'll allow me, here's what I'd like to do. Just bring us up to speed and review ever so briefly. Now, All of God's word is inspired. It is all profitable. All of it is. But in the interest of time, we're just going to narratively summarize chapters 12 and 13 and 14. So are you ready? 10 and 2, airbag is about to deploy. Here we go. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, King David is confronted by the prophet Nathan, and it is found out that he has had an affair with Bathsheba and put Bathsheba's husband Uriah to death. He is called out, and God says... The sword will never depart from your house. You will have trauma and turmoil all the rest of your days. Chapter 13 begins. And the next eight chapters are a severe detailing of how the sword does not depart from David's house. It is a localized train wreck. It is a demonstration, a case study of dysfunction. In chapter 13, we meet this man called Absalom. Absalom is the third-born son of David's living sons. His name, ironically, Avshalom, means my father is peace, which is really too bad because for the last 3,000 years, you almost never hear of somebody called Absalom, which is too bad. It's a great name. My father is peace. But because of his legacy, his heritage, nobody wants to name their kids Absalom. His mother's name is Makah. Now, Makah is a Gentile. Her daddy is the king of Gesher, which is in modern-day Syria. So she's a foreign princess who marries David, and together they have Absalom. So Absalom's not even a quote-unquote pure Jew, but he is the son of a Gentile woman and Jewish King David. Absalom has a full sister named Tamar, and Tamar is gorgeous. She's absolutely lovely. Tamar means date palm. Now, David has another son named Amnon, who is actually his firstborn son from a different wife. Ooh, 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 right there. See, that's a problem. Right there, we should be getting our first clue that the pressure is rising and that there's debris in the tracks. See, 500 years prior, God had told Moses, when the kings come into Israel and they become king, they're going to want to marry multiple women. Forbid it. They must not, lest their hearts be led astray. The king of Israel will not marry multiple times. Because in antiquity, a marriage was more often than not just a political alliance with another kingdom so that you could have safety and security on all sides. And God says, you're not going to do that. You're going to trust me because I am the sovereign God. You're not going to trust in some other king's daughter. You're going to trust me. And right away, David starts marrying over and over and over again. And so he has this blended home of his, hers, ours, theirs. I'm not sure who that one is, but there's a bunch of kids running around. 
Absalom has a sister named Tamar, and there's a boy named Amnon. Amnon has an unhealthy fixation on his half-sister Tamar. Now you can read all of this in chapter 13. You can read along. Amnon has such an unhealthy fixation that he actually makes himself sick wanting her. And the text is very brief, very succinct, very crude. He throws a tantrum because he knows that there's no way he can do anything to her. So really, uh, uh, an abrupt description, and it's really terrible. And so Amnon works himself into a tizzy because he's always been the kind of kid that gets whatever he wants. If he sees it, he assumes that he can have it. And so he throws such a tantrum that he makes himself sick. And he has a cousin named Jonadab. And Jonadab comes to him and says, Oh, son of the king, calls him by his title. You're the firstborn male in the house of David. You are the prince. You are in line to be the king. Why are you so upset? You can have whatever you want. And Amnon tells Jonadab that he desperately wants Tamar. Jonadab says, Not to worry. Here's what you do. And he concocts and devises a scheme and a plan which Amnon acts upon. He continues to pretend to be sick so that his father David comes to see Amnon. When David comes to see Amnon, he says, what is it that you need? What is it that you want? And Amnon says, oh, let's see. I can't. <laughs> Here's what I need. I need my half-sister to come and, and cook, and I need to be able to watch her cook, and I need to know that she's the one that prepared it, and I need, to, I need her to feed me. To which David should go, that's creepy. But he doesn't. He says, whatever you want, you can have. He's an enabling father, and he blesses it, and he commands Tamar, go to your brother, cook for him, and feed him. This is weird. Tamar dutifully obeys. She goes in, and immediately she gets to work, she starts cooking. She makes all these different cakes and all this different food, and she offers it to him, and he says, Ugh, I, I still can't eat. I'm, I'm just not feeling it. You know what? Send all these other people out of the room. Everyone else has to leave, just you and me, and I need you to bring the food to me and serve it to me in my bedchamber. And she does. And sure enough, as soon as she comes to feed him from her hand, the food that she has prepared, he grabs her by both wrists. And now the terror registers. And she shrieks out, do not do this, my brother, lest you be like one of the godless wretches outside of Israel. Rape is one thing. Incest is something that does not ever happen in our country. It is a godless, wretched thing. Do not do this but he will not listen. And he is stronger, the text says, and so he forces himself upon her. It's a lurid text. Immediately after, he tells her to leave. It says graphically, that he uses the word hate four times. He hated her with a hatred so severe that he hated her with more hate than when he loved her. He turns in a flash with his feverish revulsion of her. Get out! It's simply in the Hebrew. Get out! out. She says, do not do this to me. You will leave me damaged goods. You will leave me devastated and destitute. There will be no end to my dysfunction. This will be worse than the first thing you've done to me. And he calls his servant in who forcibly removes her and he bolts the door. She tears the sleeves off of her garment, which said she was a maiden worthy of marriage. She tears those off to say that she is now damaged goods. She puts dirt on her head and she goes away screaming. And she's encountered by her full brother, Absalom. Absalom says, has this thing happened that I suspect? And she says, yes. He says, I'll take care of it. Later on, David hears about it, and David is absolutely furious and does nothing. 
two years pass, Absalom won't even look at or speak to Amnon. We'll have nothing to do. He's completely ice cold in his calculation. Two years pass. Absalom decides now it's time. So he hatches a scheme and a plan. He's going to have a party at his sheep shearing at a place called Baal Hatzor, which is 15 miles north-northeast of Jerusalem. And he invites the king and all the king's sons and all the people to come up for this great grand party. David says, oh no, I'm not gonna go. We'll be way too expensive for you, too much of a burden. Absalom begs, please dad, please come. No, I'm not going to come, but who else would you like to go? I want Amnon to come. Fine, so be it. And David decrees that Amnon go to this party. Absalom tells all of his servants, this is what I need you to do. Wait for him to get completely merry, that is drunk. And when he's completely drunk, you strike him down while he's still laughing. I want him to go to the grave with the sound of laughter ringing in his ears. And they do. As soon as that happens, all of the other sons of David get up and they sprint out and they get on their mules and they ride out as fast as they can. Why? Because they assume this is a military coup. Amnon was the firstborn. He was in line. There's another son named Kiliab. We don't know what happens to him. He's never mentioned again. So Absalom would have been the next in line. So they all assume that he's seizing the throne here. So they all leave. A messenger leaves faster, gets to David and says, all of your sons are dead. Why does that happen? I have no idea. All of your sons are dead. David tears his clothes and weeps. But Jonadab, the schemer, pipes back up and he says, actually, King David, they're not all dead. Don't worry. It's just Amnon. He's the only, dumb, he's the only one that's dead. Just your firstborn son. He's dead, so don't worry. Hello, like that's good news. That's still horrible news. Killed by your other son. He was right. Jonadab says, oh yeah, Absalom has been plotting this for two solid years now. By that time, all the other sons come around the corner and they're all weeping. And it is as Jonadab has said, all the other sons are still alive. Absalom flees that place north of Jerusalem and he hooks him even farther northeast. He goes back to the home of his grandfather and he is there for three long years. He goes back to his Gentile grandfather and he lives in exile. Chapter 13 is a horrible localized train wreck of family dysfunction. So let me just point out four very quick character studies. Four men that are models of mischief that we can draw very quickly from chapter 13. Even though we didn't read the passage, let me just very quickly summarize. We've got this guy named Amnon. Amnon is lust without love. Lust without love. He's the classic spoiled brat who demands what he desires. He has no capacity for delayed gratification or submissiveness to authority. By the way, every single one of these guys, I have a whole compartment of my heart dedicated to. It's me, left to my own devices. Second guy is Jonadab. He is craftiness without conscience. This guy is a schemer and a manipulator. You can tell you're being worked by him if his mouth is moving. He's very compelling, very winsome. He seems to know everything about everybody, and he's quite aware how to get things done. He is a primary politician. He's the kind of guy you want on your side, but you secretly know that one day he won't be. That's Jonadab. Third, we have David. Anger without action. Anger without action. See, David's prior sin with Bathsheba and Uriah stained him. He mistakenly disqualified himself from the office of father and judge and king. 
God did not disqualify him from that. God imposed consequence, but he did not disqualify him from reigning and ruling and leading and loving and guiding and guarding his family. Sin doesn't do that. David self-imposes it out of pride because he doesn't want anyone to call him a hypocrite. Why? Because David, like all men, desire above all else, respect. And if you call me a hypocrite, you don't respect me. And in a cruel twist of irony, his failure to act upon his anger, his righteous indignation, is the very thing that causes him to lose all respect in front of his sons. A terrible tragedy. And then the fourth guy is Absalom. He is hatred without hindrance. Can I just say Absalom is the classic example of an absent father wound. His dad, David, evidently married this woman, Makkah, simply for an alliance. And so Absalom is treated as merely the product of a political union. And so he will clearly do whatever it takes to get attention and affection. He's apparently never been reared in wisdom, so it's no surprise that he behaves like this. So we'll talk more about Absalom here in a moment when we get back to chapter 15. But very quickly, chapter 14. I'm going to be super brief on this one. I call chapter 14 the widow's tale. I'm going to be brief because, candidly, it's a brutal chapter that I don't understand. I'm not even sure why it's in the Bible, okay? It's super confusing. Essentially, David has a general named Joab. Joab is the commander of all the armies of Israel, and he recognizes that Israel is in peril because the heir to the throne is in exile in modern-day Syria. This is not good. David is 61 years old by this time, and Joab is afraid that there's not going to be a successor to the throne, and the nation will descend into chaos. So he remembers that David had been convicted of his sin when Nathan the prophet told a story. Joab knows that David's weakness is, well, that he's a good man that is swayed by a story. And so Joab goes to the south of Israel to a place called Tekoa, 10 miles south of Jerusalem, finds a widow woman who is very wise and brings her up and has her tell David a story. This widow woman says, David, may I speak? He says, yes. She says, I'm a widow. I have no husband and I have only two sons. And they were working in a field together. And believe it or not, these two boys got in a fight. I know it's hard to imagine two brothers getting in a fight, but it happened. They got in a fight, and it got out of hand. No one was there to restrain them. One killed the other, and now I have no husband, and I only have one son. And the rest of my extended family wants to kill the offending brother. And so I'm afraid for his life. It was an accident. It shouldn't have happened, but now my tribe wants to kill him. But the reason they want to is because they want to stomp out my dead husband's line in Israel. They want to take all of my stuff and leave me ruined. Give me justice. Defend me, O king. And David says, I got this. Let me think on it. You go home, and if anyone messes with you, you bring him to me, and I'll deal with it. She says, not good enough, O king, to which he said, I'm sorry, what? She said, no, I need you to swear by God. And he says, as you say, not one hair will be harmed on his head or on yours. You have my word. And then she says, mm, that, that's great. Can I, can I say one more thing? He says, sure. She says, you're a hypocrite. <laughs> yeah, Yahtzee. The very thing he didn't want to be called, this widow from Tekoa just calls him, you're a hypocrite. You have allowed your two sons, one killed the other, and the nation is in peril because of your inaction. You must do something. Now, this is a weird chapter because the stories aren't actually parallel. Nathan's story was from God. This one's from Joab. So it's a really weird, more manipulation. It's a scheme, but it works. David says, hey, lady. This is from Joab, isn't it? You're, you didn't come up with this yourself. Joab put you up to this. And she says, yeah, sure did. 
And he says, fine, it works. He says, Joab, go and get the young man, not my son. Go and get the young man from Geshur and bring him back. Joab does, gets him and brings him back. But David says, I know he's been gone for years, but do not let him see me. I don't want to see him for two years living in the same house, essentially the same area, but does not give him any sort of audience, refuses to be seen with him. And so finally, finally Absalom has had enough. He desires, he demands attention. Now the text tells us something very interesting. Chapter 14, verses 25 to 27, tell us that Absalom is absolutely gorgeous. He's stunning. It says literally, from the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there are no defects on him. He's beautiful. Now many of you probably secretly feel that way about yourself. Let me just let you off the hook. The lights are bright. You don't have to worry about that. You're good. You're not like Absalom, okay? Neither am I. From the top of his head to the bottom of his foot, not a single defect. It says that he's so robust, so handsome, he grows his hair out all year long. And at the end of the year, he cuts his hair and he weighs it because, you know, things are slow in Israel. I don't know. He cuts his hair off and it weighs 20 shekels by the king's measure. That's 3.2 pounds of hair. Wah! That dude had a mane, okay? Now, the Jewish rabbis wrote about this, and they said, ah, well, the text is telling us something there. All the Jewish commentators say that's because he powdered his hair with gold dust. This dude was a fancy. And so you can just imagine as he gets on his chariot with 50 guys running in front of him, and the sun hits him just right, and he's got gold in his hair. Man, he's brilliant. He looks divine. Well, he can't stand the silent treatment from his dad for these long two years. And so he says, I want to see my dad. Dad doesn't return his calls. I want to see my dad. Dad takes his phone out of his number out of his phone. I'm not going to listen to you. So he goes to Joab. Joab, I want to see my dad. Not going to happen. Joab, I want to see my dad. Not going to happen. So Absalom says, I got an idea. Joab has a field next to mine. It's full of barley. I'll just burn it down. And the text is fantastic because the text says that Joab walked up to Absalom and said, why did you burn my field? Because that's just what you would say. And he says, because I tried to get your attention. You wouldn't listen. I want to see my dad. Joab says, fine. Brings him to David. At the end of chapter 14, David kisses him. Absalom bows and scrapes. And they are formally restored. Except that it's a ruse. After this, chapter 15, verse 1. Now we'll walk through the passage. Very briefly. After this, after all of that dysfunction and localized train wreckage, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. <laughs> How do you like that on your resume? What do you do? I just run in front of chariots. That's, that's what I do. Verse 2, and Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. That's like the courthouse. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. <laughs> your claims are right. What claims? Are you even going to hear the other guy's story? Nope. He's practicing perfect politics. Where are you from? Mm, and he starts to chart out his map. That guy is from Dan. That guy is from Beersheba. That guy is from Timnah. That guy is from Transjordan. Ah, and he begins to build his following. If only there was a judge in Israel to hear your case. Too bad that my dad won't see you. Which is actually, of course, not true. David had seen the widow woman in the previous chapter. But Absalom is beginning to nick away at the authority. 
Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. Translation, my dad's not, but I would. There was once a judge in the land of Israel who was the sole judge over all of Israel. His name was Moses. And Moses' father-in-law came to him and said, you can't do this, it's too big and hard. Now there are even more people in Israel, and Absalom says he wants the job. Can't be done. And verse 5, whenever a man came near to pay homage to Absalom, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Someone would try to give him princely uh, fealty. And Absalom would say, oh, no, 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 don't do that. Here. And he would stick out his hand and kiss him. Roll up his sleeves, loosen his tie, smile for the camera, click, 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 and totally work and say, I'm a man of the people. I'm not like that absent king. I'm one of you. Thus, verse 6, Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Bad translation. He tricked all of Israel. He duped them. Verse 7, at the end of four years of this, so Absalom has three years in exile, two years of silent treatment, four years of politicking. Where is David? Just letting it go. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur in Aram, saying, if the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. Hey, Dad, I want to go and worship God. What father's going to say, mm, I don't think so? And by the way, not just worship God, but go to Hebron, the first place that David reigned as king for seven years. And so, verse 9, the king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. It's a brilliant ploy. He has all of his people set up all over the land, and he says, when you hear the trumpet blow, don't say to war, to war for the new king. Just say, Absalom is king. It's happened. It's over. So that everyone will think all at once that David has just transferred the crown to Absalom. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence. They knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David counselor from the city of Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Absalom goes and gets one last conspirator, one last counselor, this guy named Ahithophel. More on him later. Verse 13, And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee. That's fascinating. That's a bit of a surprise. Let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. This is the guy who killed Goliath. This is the guy who killed tens of thousands of Philistines. This is the guy who subdued all of his enemies all around the empire. But now one guy with a very small army is on the loose, and David says, let's flee. Why? Well, for starters, David is 61 years old now. He's grown older, he's grown wiser, he's grown more patient, but he also is still the heart of a shepherd. He knows that if he stays and fights, Absalom will kill everybody in Jerusalem. And so this shepherd says, for their sakes, I have to turn and run. I have to be a shepherd to my people. David is still demonstrating a flicker of nobility. 
And the king's servants, verse 15, said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all of his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. He believes he's coming back. And so he leaves some of his Gentile servants in charge. Verse 17, And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. I love the way this is described more specifically. David is the first one out. Make sure everyone gets out. He leads them. And at the very last house, he makes sure that everyone's on. And then he has everyone pass in front of him. He's going to be the first one to go. He's going to be the last one to leave. Because this shepherd king is still going to have watch over his people. Well, verses 18 to 29 is this long list of roll call. We get all these different Carathites, Parathites. We meet some Philistines, these Gentiles who are now loyal to a Jewish king. Who have said, I'm all in on this deal, Jewish king, because you serve the one true God. I will follow you no matter what. We meet a guy named Ittai, who's a Philistine from Gath. You remember Gath, where Goliath was from. Ittai has said, I'm with you. You're the real deal. And all of these people stream out the east gate with David. Fast forward to verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. David goes out the east gate of Jerusalem. He goes down the Kidron Valley, across the Kidron Brook, up the Mount of Olives, and he's weeping as he goes. Why is he weeping? He's weeping for his son. He knows that he's been a horrific, tremendous failure. He's failed his own son. He's weeping for the people of his city. He knows that Jerusalem is in peril. He's weeping for his kingdom. He knows that it's on the brink, and he's weeping for himself. How did I come to this? How have I made such a localized train wreck? Why all the dysfunction? And this king weeps as he ascends the Mount of Olives. Verse 31, And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. It was said that the counsel of Ahithophel was like the very words of God. Ahithophel, hmm, that name rings a bell. Ahithophel was the grandfather of Bathsheba whose great-grandson died as a result of that illicit union. And Ahithophel never forgot it. And so the first opportunity, Ahithophel jumps camps and goes in with Absalom. And in an astonishing surprise, the good shepherd king lifts a prayer directly to God, doesn't go through a priest, doesn't have for sacrifice, offers a prayer responsively reaction to God himself. Please confuse the counsel of Ahithophel. And God answers the prayer. We'll look at this in a couple weeks. This dirty old man with torn clothes and dust on his head comes walking over the hill. His name was Hushai. And he will be the answer to David's prayer, though not what David expects. So then, what are we going to do with all this? Why is this text here? How does it point us to Christ? All of this dysfunction. Well, it's a great reminder that though there is sin, there is a Savior. I'm going to level with you this whole week as I've been wrestling with this text, literally since last Sunday afternoon, wrestling with these three chapters of narrative. What I've wanted to do is to simply come in here and go, okay, here's the point. Sin's bad. Stop it. Just quit it. It's a mess. It'll mess you up. Don't do sin. Sin's bad. All agree? Let's pray and go home. But but, but no, 
It's not quite that easy, is it? If that were the case, that we could just not do the sin thing, then we wouldn't need a Savior. But we do. So there's a lot more going on in this three-chapter narrative of dysfunction. So let me just offer three implications to help us think through what we can learn from this passage. Number one goes like this. It's pretty simple. It's pretty brief. It goes like this. Deal with it. Deal with it. Now, you perhaps have been told that by a loved one or a friend or whatever, but let me, let me explain what I mean when I say deal with it. You see, family dysfunction and relational strain are normative realities in every single home. But the way to worsen dysfunction is to sit back, do nothing, and expect that everything will just work itself out organically. I can't tell you how many counseling contexts I've had where I've said, hey, what are you doing about this thing that happened, this, this bomb that went off in your home? Nothing. We're just waiting along to see how it's going to work out. And how's that working out for you? Well, we're further apart than we've ever been and moving farther apart. Okay, so now we're just going to wait and see. Really? Not going to work. Deal with it. If you think it's going to work itself out organically, it won't. Nothing in this life drifts to good. Nothing. The longer we wait, the deeper the ruts we carve that create new normals of wreckage and cycles of destruction and dysfunction. David waited for five years before he finally addressed Absalom, and he never addressed Amnon, and he never addressed Tamar. That breaks my heart. This woman lives the rest of her life destitute, devastated, and in dysfunction because David never engages with her. See, our willingness to deal with things like this is in itself a communication of love and the worth of the other person at my own expense. So let me get really granular very quickly. Husbands, oh, that's right, time for the squirm, that's right. Husbands, when, not if, but when you feel that you have been disrespected by your spouse or your kids or your friends or coworkers or neighbors or strangers or pastor or whomever, when you feel that way, deal with it. Deal with it right then and there. Sitting on it and simmering will only generate resentment and bitterness. Either have a prayer-filled conversation with one you think treated you low or turn and face the cross and allow it to be nailed there and let it die. Because just like David, all of us desperately desire respect because deep down we know that we're not really deserving of it. We all deeply, secretly feel that we're a fraud. David did. And he allowed that wedge to plant deeply. So deal with it. Wives, your turn. At some point, this might be hard for you to believe, but just take this on faith. At some point, your husband is going to treat you as though you're not the treasure that you are. I'm see, it just may not have happened in your home yet, but it has in mind. So just take that on faith. That sometimes happens. And you're going to begin to feel like you're not as lovely as you feel. Now listen. It's probably because your husband is so bound up in his own insecurity and failure that he'll have a tendency to think, you'll have a tendency to think that he doesn't find you lovely anymore. But that's not it. So deal with it prayerfully and sweetly have the hard conversation. Parents, now this is on you. Sometimes I know it's just easier to let things go and to say something like, well, it'll all work out. Boys will be boys. And to apathetically use the covering of grace to explain things away. But that's lazy. That is a selfish approach that you just don't want to be bothered like David. I'm not talking about leaving uh, the trash can on the street too long. I'm talking about family discord and dysfunction. 
If our kids are beginning to demonstrate dysfunction to the family and to other groups, we have to deal with it. We owe it to them and to future generations to have those hard conversations now. Otherwise, the wedge and the divide only widens. By the way, this same principle is true in every other relationship, whether it's in friends, whether it's children, two parents, whether it's coworkers, yes, even in the church. See, there is sin, but there is a Savior. The Bible says we've been given everything we need for life and godliness and the indwelling of God's Spirit to bring about resolution. Jesus himself said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Even Jesus said to Judas, What you must do, do quickly. Deal with it. That's number one. Now even more quickly, number two. Everyone thinks they're the good guy. Everyone thinks they're the good guy. See, all of these characters that we read about in this long dysfunctional narrative assume that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing because, well, because they want to. It's clear that all of them have gotten to this assumption because they are completely devoid of a relationship with God or with his word. There is this innate sense, this right out of the box sense of self-justification and rightness and entitlement. I'm right because, well, I'm me. Don't you understand? Don't you see? I'm right because I'm me. And the people that I'm with, the people, the group that I represent, we're right because, well, it includes me. And the way that I think and the way that I feel is right because, well, don't you see? It's me. See, most of us come right out of the box with this hardwiring belief that we are the star of our show that we're the centerpiece of our grand narrative. I'm the hero in my show. But what the Bible comes along and says is, mm, actually, you're the great villain in your story. What is religion? Religion is simply this, the organizing narrative of your life. That's all it is. It's just the organizing narrative of your life. And most of us come into this world believing that at the center of that narrative, I'm the good guy. I have the white hat. But no, all of us are actually wrong. Here's the biblical reality. Every single one of us is actually the bad guy. Titus 3.3 puts it this way, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Can I translate that for you? It says this, we ourselves were once Amnons and Absaloms and Davids and Jonadabs and even Tamars. Every single one of us, there is sin. Ah, but there is a Savior. Paul continues in Titus 3, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified, declared righteous by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. See, a crucial part of hearing and receiving the good news is also hearing and receiving the bad news. I'm the bad guy. I am prone to Amnon. I am prone to Absalom. I am prone to Jonadab. I am prone to David. Prone to leave the God I love. Much of the wreckage and the dysfunction in my own family is because I, like the characters of chapter 13, get away from even being sensitive to God's will and God's word. Point number three, the word of the Lord does not fail ever. Now, I know we know this, but let me explain. The word of the Lord does not fail ever. 
Way back now in chapter 12, God tells David, the sword will never depart from your house. And the next eight chapters are detailing all of that dysfunction. Nathan tells the story of a man who took another man's lamb, killed it, cooked it, served it, and ate it. And David suddenly gets biblically preachy, and he quotes from Leviticus, and he says, there must be a fourfold repaying by that man. And Nathan says, ooh, that's going to sting. And sure enough, the next eight chapters, what we're going to learn is that David loses four sons. He will lose the child that was born to him in Bathsheba. He will lose Amnon, killed by his other son. Spoiler alert, in a couple chapters, we're going to learn that even Absalom is killed by Joab, the general. And then a little later on, one more rebellion from another son called Adonijah. He is also killed. One, two, three, and four. Oh, there is forgiveness of sin. But as we already said earlier in the series, the forgiveness and grace does not mean the elimination of consequence. See, God is sovereign. He accomplishes precisely what he wants, precisely on time, through the bad choices of billions of people. That's sovereignty. And so, yes, David's doing all these things, and he should not have done it, and yet God used it to accomplish his word. God's word never fails, ever. Way back in Genesis chapter 50, Joseph tells his brothers, what you intended for evil, God superintended for good. God is sovereign. Peter says the same thing in Acts chapter 3. He tells Israel, you murdered the author of life, which was God's plan. God is sovereign, and we are responsible. There's a mystery, and there's a tension, but there is truth, which leads to some very good news. There is sin, but there is a Savior. The kings of Israel, including the good King David, the man after God's own heart, they leave us wanting more. God has heard our yearning. If David is as good as it gets, and he was, then what hope do we have as a species? Short answer, none. But there is another king who has come out of Israel, and this long narrative points to him. Just like David marched out the east gate, out of Jerusalem, down the Kidron Valley, across the brook, up the Mount of Olives, a thousand years later, we're told that Jesus takes the exact same route. Out the east gate, down the Kidron Valley, across the brook, and up the Mount of Olives. It is recorded in the book of Matthew and in Luke, weeping as he goes. But why is Jesus weeping? Not for the same reasons as David. He was weeping for the sin and rejection of the people for whom he would soon offer himself as a sacrifice. He's weeping for all the little Amnons and Jonadabs and Davids and Absaloms and Tamars that we all are, who at our best are men at best. We are capable of such great harm and error and dysfunction. Jesus was weeping for the wreckage and devastation that our arrogance and anger and apathy cause in so many lives. So many cycles of destruction and dysfunction and localized train wrecks. He was weeping because of all the dysfunction in the world then and now. He was weeping because he was about to become all of it. Can you just imagine how much dysfunction there is in the cosmos? Jesus was about to experience all of it. And he was going to receive the wrath of God the Father because of it. See, this good shepherd king knew that his function was to reverse the dysfunction of our lives by being nailed to a cross and so to offer a grace-soaked reality so that we might become the righteousness of that same God. And this good shepherd king 
will also come again. He will return through the east gate, and while he's away, he has entrusted the realm to us. He will obliterate all the dysfunction once and for all. But for those who believe, we get to experience his reign even now. One day, the government will be on his shoulders. But even for now, there is peace. There is sin, but there is a Savior. So if you're here this morning and you're not a believer and you're experiencing dysfunction, let me just say we believe that God's word says your dysfunction is a human problem that requires a divine solution. And we believe that Jesus is the answer, the son of the living God who took into himself and reversed all of the dysfunction that you can muster so that you might have right standing before God. And so I invite you to believe that it's true. For the rest of us, Perhaps you have gotten a little away from God's will and God's word, and you're perilously close to the brink, like David, of going off. The tragedy of chapter 13 is that God is again never mentioned. No one is walking in righteousness in Israel. May that never be the case with us, with you, or your family. There is sin, oh, but there is a Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word, though it be long and candidly confusing. I thank you for your spirit to illumine, to add understanding. I pray that every person in this room will have heard a better sermon than the one that was just preached. Oh, please. Father, may you redeem it. Father, I pray that you, by your spirit, would lead anyone who is not yours into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus. For the rest of us, Father, whether we're Amnons or whether we're Tamars, would you redeem and restore? Because only you can. Would you, by grace and by joy, lead us back into a proximity and nearness to you to experience the joy of your word, your spirit, and your people. May it be exactly as I have prayed or even better. God, we love you because you loved us first. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, thank you for enduring the longest sermon ever written. Let me ask you to stand for a word of benediction, and you will finally be dismissed. If you have not yet signed up for our church picnic, please do so right out those doors. Brandy Williams will be there to greet you and to help you sign up for the casserole of cornflakes of your choice. Now a benediction from the book of Hebrews. Now may the God who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, may he equip you for every good work, and may you do it. God bless. You're dismissed. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.